Thank you, Joel. You, you kind of illustrate what I'm going to start with here, poinsettia or poinsettia. How many say poinsettia? Poinsettia. Okay. So it's just, uh, it's funny how the English language is. Joel, I think actually the truth is that in Finnish, it's poinsettia. In English, it's poinsettia, except on Sundays on the third week of the month. Yeah, right. Let's face it, the English language really is kind of a crazy language, isn't it, when you think about it? For example, there's no egg in eggplant, right? There's no ham in hamburger. There's neither apple nor pine in pineapple. English muffins weren't invented in England, and French fries weren't invented in France. We native speakers take English for granted, but if we think sometime about the paradoxes in our language, we find that quicksand works slowly. Boxing rings are actually square. And a guinea pig is neither from guinea nor a pig. And why is it that writers write but fingers don't fing? You ever thought about that? Wait, there it goes. Grocers don't gross and hammers don't ham. You have one goose and you have two geese. So does that mean one moose, two meese? Doesn't it seem crazy that you can make amends but not one amend? You think about these things? Isn't it crazy that you comb through the annals of history but not a single annal? If you have a bunch of dots and uh, you have a bunch of odds and ends and get rid of all but one of them, what do you call it? Leftovers. If teachers taught, why didn't preachers prod? If a vegetarian eats vegetables, what does a humanitarian eat? In what language do people recite at a play and play at a recital? You know, I, I have new sympathy now for uh, Ruslan and Svetlana and their family trying to learn. Of course, Svetlana knows the English language. She may not know some of these things. We ship by truck and send cargo by ship. We have noses that run and feet that smell. We park on driveways and, and uh, drive on parkways. And how can a slim chance and a fat chance be the exact same thing? While a wise man and a wise guy are opposites. How can overlook and oversee be opposites while quite a lot and quite a few are just the same thing? You may know about an unsung hero, but have you ever heard of a sung hero? You may know someone who's been discombobulated, disgruntled, unruly, or impeccable. But have you ever known someone who was combobulated, gruntled, ruly, or peckable? I don't know about you, but I'm never disgruntled. I'm always fully gruntled. <laughs> and where do you find those people who are spring chickens or who would actually hurt a fly? As I said before, I never repeat myself. These kinds of things may be, I thank you, a few of you got that last one. Maybe I need to pound the pulp a little bit to make sure all of you are awake. These things may sound or feel like paradoxes, things that seem to be contradictory but can in fact be true. A paradox often defies logic and it runs counter to our expectations. Here in the Advent season, I do believe it's spiritually healthy for us to do what the mother of Jesus, Mary, is said to have done. We read in 
Luke chapter 2, verse 19, it tells us about Mary that she treasured these things and pondered them in her heart. And some of, even many of those things that she saw and she heard seemed impossible. They seemed contradictory or the opposite of her expectations. So she pondered, she contemplated these things. She thought deeply about all that she had seen and heard. And she contemplated these things and what they meant and how human salvation history had intersected with her young life. And just what did she ponder? Not just the things that she had witnessed immediately prior to this verse in Luke chapter 2. There was much more. What else did Mary know and ponder besides the events before Luke chapter 2 verse 19? She had no doubt heard about the angel who spoke to Zechariah in Luke chapter 1 verse 13. She had her own very up-close and personal experience of an angel speaking to her in Luke chapter 1 verse 26, announcing her pregnancy and the birth of the coming king. She had an amazing visit with her relative Elizabeth in Luke 1.39. The verses in Luke 1.46 and following tell us that she understood a lot that's her magnificat, her praise to the Lord, right? But it, she did understand a lot about what was happening to her and her place in salvation history. She likely heard about Zechariah's song after John the Baptist was born. She knew that her husband Joseph had stayed with her despite not being the biological father of the baby Mary was carrying. And she knew that Joseph didn't leave her because of what an angel had spoken to him. And then in the passage right before she was described as pondering these things, she saw and heard the testimony of the shepherds and angels in Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 20. And that's not all. Later, understand again, at least in part, her place in salvation history, understanding and believing what the angel had spoken to her, that the child she bore would be the Son of the Most High. He would sit on the throne of his father David, that his kingdom will never end, that he is the Son of God. And how could all this happen because nothing is impossible with God? Then what did Mary ponder? She still had things to think about. After Jesus was born, can you imagine holding this helpless little baby and wondering, is this really God in the flesh? Could these precious and tender little baby fingers have really shaped the world, shaped me? When she held the baby Jesus close, she might have pondered what it meant to be feeling the beating heart of God when she touched his chest. As Jesus grew, she had to have contemplated, how can I teach anything to the creator of the universe, my very maker? Have these little tiny feet really walked with angels? Joseph must have had similar questions. He must have thought about, he must have pondered these things. But we see again in Luke 2.19, Mary treasured these things and pondered them in her heart. So at Christmas time, I like to sit and ponder too. I like to sit in my living room with all the lights off except for the lights of the Christmas tree. I like to listen to Christmas music and think and ponder and contemplate. And sometimes like Mary... I ponder the great truths of the Christmas story, but I also ponder some of the other great truths of our Christian faith. And like Mary, I realize as I contemplate, as I ponder, 
that so much of it is a paradox. A paradox is not quite but close to the meaning of an oxymoron, which is a figure of speech which produces an incongruous, seemingly self-contradictory effect, as in cruel kindness or to make haste slowly. There are a lot of paradoxes and oxymorons in the world we live in, seemingly contradictory things, things that seem to be mutually exclusive. For example, why do croutons come in airtight packages? Aren't they just stale bread to begin with? Or why if people ask, uh, if you ask people why they have deer heads mounted on their walls, they'll tell you because they think they're such beautiful animals. I think my wife is beautiful, but I don't only have photographs of her on the wall. <laughs> Paradoxes. Or consider this, the hardness of butter is directly proportionable to the softness of the bread. You ever notice that? The severity of the itch is inversely proportional to the ability to reach it, especially when it's winter and cold and dry. Here's a question. If Barbie is so popular, then why do you have to buy her friends? <laughs> if the number two pencil is so popular, why is it still number two? <laughs> These are paradoxes, okay? They're silly, but seriously, if you think about it, the Christian faith often seems to be one of paradox, doesn't it? Those of us who take the Bible seriously believe in definite black and white. And we believe in the absolute truths and we believe that there is a right way to interpret Scripture. Yet there are some truths about God, about the way He chooses to do things, that we must admit, if we're honest with ourselves and each other, that they are paradoxes. Jesus spoke in phrases that to our finite understanding we have to think like Mary thought, how can that be? We read in John chapter 12, verse 25, He who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world shall keep it to life eternal. Now in our understanding, in our society, our culture, you look out for number one, don't you? That's the cultural norm. And who's number one? I am, or we are. In our society, in our culture, the expectation is that you love your life because you love yourself. If you don't, you're foolish. But here Jesus is telling us to hate our lives in this world. Now clearly this is meant to be a comparison to how we love him and follow him. But the statement at first blush is a paradox because it contradicts our society's common understanding of love of self. When Jesus says things like it is more blessed to give than to receive, our first reaction is, what a paradox. But in living our faith, in knowing Christ fully, in meditating on his word, we come to understand that these things make perfect sense in the economy of God, even when we don't fully understand them ourselves. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, chapter 3, verse 18, do not deceive yourselves. If any of you thinks he is wise by the standards of this age, he should become a fool so that he may become wise. So to paraphrase, to be wise, be a fool. Now, does that make perfect sense to anyone here? Not without the enlightenment of Scripture and the illumination of the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, it's a nonsensical paradox. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 10, Paul wrote... He was sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Poor, yet making many rich, having nothing, and yet possessing everything. Seemingly contradictory. Almost impossible, but true. And then later in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10, 
That is why for Christ's sake I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Now only the Holy Spirit can bring us that kind of attitude. Delighting in weaknesses, hardships, persecutions, difficulty, maybe tolerating. Anybody can kind of work up the strength to tolerate, maybe putting up with them, but delighting. And then he adds, for when I am weak, then I am strong. What a paradox. And to the Philippians, he wrote in chapter 3, verse 7, but whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. These are just a few passages that we could come up with and we could name that present some of the things in the Christian faith that are really paradoxes or even maybe oxymorons. We haven't even begun to look at some of the more significant ones like how do grace and works fit together? How about the sovereignty of God and our free will? Both of those things are taught clearly in the Word. So we know that both are true, but what a paradox. Hard to wrap our minds around. Some of these things, even with the enlightenment brought by Scripture and by the Holy Spirit, are still paradoxes to our finite minds, our sin-clouded minds. This is meant, I believe, to bring up the point where Paul was when he wrote this to the Romans after considering for several chapters God's amazing plan of salvation. I think I'm going to abandon this and use the podium. Romans 6, I'm sorry, Romans 11, verses 33 through 36, where Paul wrote, Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. So when Paul got to the end of his ponderings, his contemplation, and realized some of these things that he was contemplating seemed like paradoxes, what did it cause him to do? It caused him to glorify God. Rather than just dig deeper, and he did, he always dug deeper, he glorified the Lord. I believe Mary, the mother of Jesus, thought about such things as well. She witnessed and heard a lot of amazing things in the course of less than a year prior to the birth of her firstborn son. And even on that night when Jesus was born, and they couldn't book a room in the Holiday Inn, remember she was just a teenage girl willing to serve the Lord. Think of how many of you girls here are between the ages of 12 and 18. You're in the same age range as Mary was when all this happened to her. So Mary was more than just obedient, more than just devoted to God. She was a thinker. Again, after the shepherds left, the word tells us Mary treasured all these things in her heart and pondered them. She thought about, pondered these things, these events, these seeming paradoxes. And instead of causing her to dismiss these things as wild fancy or foolish dreams, would have been easy to do that, right? It brought to her a sense of wonder, a sense of gratitude, thanksgiving for the blessing God had given to her and through her. And it says she treasured these things. She didn't just think about them. She treasured these things. 
I believe that the Christmas season is the perfect time of year for us to consider some of the great paradoxes of our faith, and yes, even to treasure them. It's a time for Christmas contemplations. These kinds of thoughts stretch us. They challenge us. They should cause us to seek answers in his word and not in our own contemplations. But perhaps most importantly, they reveal to us a mighty God, so much greater than we can ever imagine, so great that truth and reality to him often seem as paradoxes to us. They're wondrous paradoxes. They reveal to us a God of wonder beyond all galaxies who is holy, as we sometimes sing, a God who is able to do far above and beyond what we can even imagine. They reveal truths that we tend to think of as either-or facts, but in God's wisdom, they are both-and truths. We read in 1 Timothy chapter 3, Beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great. He appeared in a body, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. Now, this truth about godliness being a mystery doesn't mean what we think of when we hear or sometimes use the word mystery today. Some people thought, as they do today, of mysteries as things that are unknowable. But in the New Testament, this word for mystery is used to mean something that was once hidden but is now revealed. That doesn't always make it fully understandable to us, to our finite minds, but not being fully understandable doesn't mean it's not truth. Also, this truth, as noted in 1 Timothy, is a great truth, a mega truth, meaning large, important, meaning that this truth is overwhelmingly large in scope and extremely important in significance. So let me read that passage again from 1 Timothy 3.16. Beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great. He appeared in a body. That's what we're celebrating during this season, the incarnation. He was vindicated by the Spirit. He was seen by angels. He was preached among the nations and believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. It's a summary of the gospel even, isn't it? That's how Paul described this mystery to Timothy. And this mystery is how we can receive the gift of grace, which brings us to true godliness. In this passage, the most pertinent phrase for us in this Christmas season is the fact that Jesus appeared in a body. And that's, again, something we call the incarnation. We'll consider that more fully in a moment. There's an author and writer uh, named William MacDonald. He wrote about this passage. He said, the mystery is great, not because it's very mysterious, but because it's so astounding. Jesus existed from the beginning. He existed before time itself. But in Jesus, eternity stepped in to time. The eternal one was born into a world of time. The timeless one now lived in a world where we have calendars and clocks to keep track of the time. The one who is omnipresent in the Christmas story is now confined to a single place in the person of Jesus. Again, quoting MacDonald, it is wonderful to think that the great God who fills heaven and earth should compress himself into a human body. As men looked at him, they could say accurately, 
In him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. From the palace of heaven to a cattle shed, a stable, a manger, the omnipotent one became a helpless baby. It is no exaggeration to say that he whom Mary held in her arms held Mary, for he is the sustainer as well as the maker. The omniscient one is the fountain of all wisdom and knowledge, and yet we read of him that as a child he increased in wisdom and knowledge. These are all truths of the Incarnation. It's perhaps the greatest paradox of our faith, but they are proclaimed as absolutely true in the Word of God. Fully God and fully man at the same time. Not half God and half man. The Master came into the world as a servant. The Lord of glory veiled that glory in a body of flesh. The Lord of life came into the world for the express purpose of dying. The Holy One, who cannot look upon sin, came into this cesspool of sin that we call earth. The object of the Father's delight, the object of angelic worship. He hungered, he thirsted, he slept, he sweated, he was weary. He wandered as a homeless stranger in the world that his hands had made. He worked at a manual labor job, yet he never even had the things that we have, a nice mattress, hot and cold running water, a warm auditorium to worship together in. He came from luxury to poverty. Believers throughout the centuries have pondered these great truths, these paradoxes. It started with Mary. Think about it. Mary was the first one confronted with the choice to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And as we noted, she pondered these things. She treasured these things. Think of this today. Mary was the only human present at Jesus' birth who also witnessed his death. She saw him arrive as her baby son, and she watched him die as her Savior. There is a verse in a modern Christmas song sung by Mark Lowry that asks, Mary, did you know that this child that you've delivered will soon deliver you? I think there's a good chance that that's something that she thought about when it says she pondered these things. But it's also something worth our prayerful pondering this very Christmas season and every Christmas season. Many others have considered and wondered and become awestruck by these truths as well. Charles Spurgeon wrote of Jesus, infinite and an infant, eternal and yet born of a woman, supporting a universe and yet needing to be carried in a mother's arms. Paradoxes, aren't they? King of angels and yet the reputed son of Joseph, heir of all things and yet the carpenter's despised son. The Lord of the universe set aside his royal robes and exchanged them for a set of diapers. Now, does that seem kind of irreverent, considering the idea that Jesus probably wore diapers? Now, they certainly weren't the kind of high-tech, super-absorbent ones that we have today. You know, the kind where if you put your kid in it and put them in a pool, they'll probably sink to the bottom. But if we believe what scriptures clearly teach, that Jesus was fully God and fully man, both one and the same at the same time, a real paradox, but we believe it, then he must have been like any other baby of his time. 
He can't have been supernaturally potty trained from birth. Many of us parents wish that was the case when we go through that with our kids, right? In the Gospel of John, it's the one that doesn't contain at all the story of Jesus' birth. The other three Gospels do. John doesn't. But it speaks most clearly of the incarnation and all of its implications. We see in the Gospel of John that Jesus was weary. We see that he was thirsty. We see that he groaned within. We see that he openly wept. We see that on the cross he was thirsty, that he bled, that he died. It's very interesting to me that the Gospel of John that mentions absolutely nothing about the story of Jesus' birth contains more theology about that birth than the other Gospels. We read in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, we don't generally think of this as a Christmas verse. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. And then, in case you don't know who John is referring to, we read in John 1.14, the word that he was talking about in John, the beginning of John 1, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father full of grace and truth. That's a Christmas verse. That's about the incarnation, fully God and fully man. It's a key doctrine for us as believers in Christ to contemplate this and every Christmas season. And it's a clearly biblical idea, but the word incarnation is not found in the word of God. We use it because the Latin version of John 1.14 used it. But as a biblical teaching, incarnation affirms the fact that God, in one of the three persons of the Trinity, and without ceasing to be God, that's important too, has revealed himself to humanity for the sake of our salvation by becoming the human being named Jesus. Jesus, the same baby born in Bethlehem, the man from Nazareth, is the embodiment, the incarnation of God himself. So Jesus, as God in the flesh, or as John 1 puts it, the word made flesh, makes it possible for us to participate in a relationship with God the Father. This is a critical thing for us to accept, even though it's an amazing paradox. What Jesus taught us and what he accomplished for us are inseparably tied to who he is. Let me say that again. What Jesus taught us, what Jesus accomplished for us, these things are inseparably tied to who he is. That's why one of the key red flags that tells us that a belief system is cultic is how they view Jesus. That's a key reason why Islam is a false religion. They believe in Jesus, but they believe he was just a prophet, not God in the flesh. That's why Jehovah's Witnesses are a cult. They don't believe Jesus was divine. That's why liberal Christianity doesn't work. Jesus, in their view, is not truly God in the flesh. They might accept him as a good teacher, somebody who really lived in history, as if that's truly significant. But that's not one of the choices we have. That's not one of the choices we have about what to believe about Jesus. He is either divine, God in the flesh, or he isn't. Though Jesus took upon himself full humanity and lived as a man, 
He never stopped being God. As the Word of God says, He was from the beginning. He is the creator of all things, and He sustains all things. He is the source, the only source of eternal life. This is the truth about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That same baby who was born in Bethlehem, that same baby whose birth we celebrate again this Christmas season. This truth is really foundational. Think about things that are foundational. Foundation means every other truth we believe is built on this one. If we cannot or do not believe this truth, we cannot or will not have faith to trust our eternal destiny to him. Think about that. Now, clearly, people have struggled with these truths, these paradoxes, for centuries. Even in the Christmas story, we see that struggle at least a little bit. After Mary was told she'd become pregnant, she asked, not so much in doubt, but in wonder, how could this be? How could this be? The angel didn't castigate her for you, you, you doubter, right? The angel just explained it. Let's read that passage in Luke chapter 1. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph. Let's not miss that she was pledged to be married and she was a virgin. A descendant of David, the virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you, are, who, you who are finally favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. So that's when Mary's contemplation and musing and, and, uh, and pondering probably began. You could probably, the angel probably looking at her face could see her head, her mind churning as he was saying these things to her. So Mary said, how will this be? Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin. Well, Mary understood. She understood how babies are born, right? She understood enough of that, and she knew that virgins don't have babies. But the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be barren is in her sixth month, for nothing is impossible with God. So there are two keys here for how we are to deal with paradoxes of faith. Mary asked the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? How would God do the impossible in Mary's life? How does God do the seemingly impossible in our lives? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the same uh, word in the original language used here where it says the Holy Spirit will come upon you is also used in Acts 1.8. Most of us know Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Then the same words the angel used here when he said the power of the Most High will overshadow you are also used in each gospel account of the transfiguration of Jesus. You remember that story. In Matthew 17, it says, While he was still speaking, a bright cloud enveloped them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my son whom I love. 
With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. How can this be? The final answer is in verse 37 of Luke chapter 1. Nothing is impossible with God. It's the message of Christmas. It's the paradox that we can't wrap our minds around, but it's the answer to that paradox. It's the answer when we wonder the same thing as Mary did about different things in our lives, the way God chooses to move. We struggle with that, don't we? We may trust him, but how he chooses to do things is the harder part. How can this be? Nothing is impossible with God. We read in Matthew 19.26 where Jesus reiterates the same truth. Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, with, with God all things are possible. So as we're pondering the many paradoxes of our faith, as it intersects with the events of our lives, as we ponder the paradox of Christmas, as we join Mary centuries later contemplating these things, yes, even treasuring these things, thanking God for these things, let's remember the angel's answer to Mary when she asked, as we often do, how can this be? How can this be? Nothing is impossible with God. The maker of the universe, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, made flesh and lived among the humans he created. He loved us. He died for us. He died at the hands of men he made. He died when nails that were forged from the steel that he created pierced that flesh. And then he rose again, conquering death, conquering sin forever. It's a paradox, isn't it? It's a paradox, but it's also an amazing, incredible story of mercy, grace, and love. For nothing is impossible with God. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for these truths, even these truths that seem to us to be paradoxes that are in a very real way often difficult for us to wrap our minds around and reconcile in our sin-clouded and finite minds. But in your great plans and purposes, in your perfect mind, Heavenly Father, we know that these things, even though they seem to be paradoxes to us, are true. So we want to trust you in the midst of the paradoxes of our faith and in the midst of the paradoxes of our lives and help us to remember what the angel said as his final answer to Mary, nothing is impossible with God. In Jesus' name we pray.